Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Chris Martin, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple Best in Indiana Journalism award-winning public affairs program celebrating 13 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. In honor of Memorial Day, the Bring It On crew has prepared a special broadcast of Best Of recordings from their archives. So let's begin with a pre-recorded interview from November 9th, 2015, with a conversation featuring Doris Sims and Amrita Myers as they welcomed Rafa Hassan, director of the City of Bloomington Safe and Civil City Program, and Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Mati. They provided a prelude to their November 12th, 2015 community conversation on the City of Bloomington's relationship with law enforcement. In response to the increasing number of tragic police citizen encounters around America, the City of Bloomington Safe and Civil City Program will present the second program in the Community Conversations with Law Enforcement series. On this Thursday, November the 12th, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. in the Council Chambers of City Hall in the Showers Building. The first Community Conversation with Law Enforcement was held on January 22nd, 2015. This event initiated several discussions by members of the city's religious community, local media, and community and student advocacy groups. This second forum will explore the impact of mass and social media on our views of policing and how those forces shape and influence our perceptions and realities. This discussion also will include representatives from the Bloomington Police Department, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office, Indiana University Police Department, and Indiana State Police. It will be moderated by IU Professor of Criminal Justice, Akwazi Owosu Bimba. Community members will be given an opportunity to publicly and privately meet with members from the respective law enforcement agencies. Ruben Marte is a captain with the Indiana State Police who led a series of community conversations in Bloomington on the topic of improving police and community relations. During his presentation, he addressed the real and present distrust, fear, and misunderstanding between the police force and the communities they serve. We've also invited Rafi Hassan, director of the City of Bloomington Safe and Civil City Program, and Captain Marte as a prelude to this Thursday's community conversation. Gentlemen, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Well... If we can start with Rafi. Rafi, if you could give us some background information about the event that's going to be taking place this week, the reason for it, and, you know, and what you hope to accomplish. Sure. Um, as you both stated um, in the introduction, January 22nd, 2015, um, City Hall uh, in council chambers uh, was the site of a very spirited discussion about law enforcement within you know our local community on the eve of what many people um, had largely been coming to grips with the death of Trayvon Martin uh, and Michael Brown's death in Ferguson Missouri largely represented the precipice to that I think that uh, our the president of the Monroe County branch of the NAACP as well as um, the uh, uh, chief of police, Mike Decoff, Bloomington Police Department, excuse me, uh, began to have a conversation. And largely what came out of that conversation was uh, a necessity to make sure that uh, community and police relations within the city of Bloomington um, um, were taking place. And that, uh, you know, obviously the concern is always about making sure that um, the relationship between, um, you know, the community police wasn't strained to the point that, you know, we saw the uh, uh, protest that had taken place, so. Um. Well, Ruben, um, it's my understanding that were you part of the first conversation that took place? Yes, I was. Be before I get into it, let me give you a little history of what, how I got involved with this. I will say roughly about a year and a half ago, uh, the superintendent for the United State Police came to me and asked me to go ahead and put a program together for law enforcement. 
And it took me some time to put that together because it's a very delicate topic, it's a very sensitive topic. And uh, it took me easily uh, close to almost a year uh, to get to where I'm at now. In the process, when I went through the training and, and received some training and actually was part of the first forum, as Ralphie mentioned, um, the questions that were proposed to us, I was one of the panelists there, but the question that was proposed to us uh, led me to believe that really there is a misunderstanding of what we do in law enforcement. <clears throat> so I decided to go on my own and, and, and talk to uh, specifically the black community about what we do. So I put a second presentation together and that presentation pretty much basically tries to uh, explain, put the citizens in our shoes and try to uh, uh, put to rest misconceptions of what we do. And I started here in Bloomington specifically uh, because the forum was here in Bloomington. And uh, uh, to my surprise, a lot of the things that were mentioned or, or brought to my attention were a lot of concerns of fear and mistrust of the police. A lot of things also that came to light was is that when there's fear, there's misconceptions. When there's misconceptions, people do things they shouldn't be doing. And one of the things that came out also that just don't trust the police, period. So I had to put certain concerns to rest, and that's a very difficult thing. So the first thing I had to do was listen. Listen very carefully to what the concerns were of the people. And then at that point, try to address that as best as I could. Um, and that was a common denominator every time I've done this. Uh, I've done it in the city of Bloomington throughout, throughout the, the southern part of Indiana. And the same common denominator is just the fear. So to me, you know, for the public to fear the police is troublesome because that's not what it should be. Because the only people that, that, actually, that actually win when the public and the police do not work together are the criminals. And sadly enough to say, everything that I'm learning so far when I was approached was way before Ferguson. So it's not an actual uh, knee-jerk reaction of Ferguson. We started thinking about this way before Ferguson. And unfortunately, after Ferguson, a lot of things have taken place also. So that being said, uh, uh, I'm very grateful and, and, and humbled to be in this particular radio show because uh, I could try to explain whatever question the public might have through you and hopefully try to mis put, put the, the mistrust to rest, if possible. So you talked a little bit about the program that you've put together. So where have you taken your program to? Um, here in Bloomington. Here in Bloomington, the uh, First Second Baptist Church, uh, Bethel, and Lighthouse Church. Okay. And uh, they they were very gracious when I spoke to all three pastors. I showed them what I did first, though, because it was very new. I, sh I showed them individually the presentation just to make sure that they will agree that this is something they would like their con congress uh, congregation to see and at the same time invite the general public. And when I sat with them and they saw it, I said, yes, this is good. Let's do this. Um, at the Second Baptist Church, uh, I was telling Ralph before the show started, uh, I went back a second time there because uh, the first time it was very successful, but the, the young kids were there and they were very, very patient with us, with adults conversation. But I wanted to come back and, and, and gear our attention towards the young people because I wanted their, their trust also. So I invited Bloomington Police Department, the Sheriff Department and IU Police Department and plus the state police and we all got together the second time and met at that church, and uh, it was a great success. In fact, that's when I first met Ralphie in that, in that uh, gathering. And so if we talk a little bit more about what's um, happening this Thursday, because it seems like that there's the same law enforcement who will be coming together. And so well, what is the topic, or what do you hope to have discussed at the meeting that's we taking place this Thursday? Well, what came and prompted uh, uh, certainly, you know, the first discussion and eventually a lot of the programs that um, not only uh, that was held at one program was held at IU um, and, and the others that uh, Ruben or excuse me, uh, uh, Captain Marte or Ruben. Ruben um, is good. Ruben is good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Ruben were talking about held in the community. Um, I guess there was enough of a call or uh, interest in more or less having a sustained conversation um, with uh, the residents 
uh, within the city to have the community conversation with law enforcement. So um, Safe and Civil City has largely adopted community conversation with law enforcement as a series, as something that's that's ongoing, as something that um, we feel that it's necessary to make sure that, you know, residents have an opportunity simply to come out and ask questions about f- the four law enforcement communities that um, uh, w- w- with, I guess, everything of uh, uh, being uh, uh, right in a perfect world, I mean, you realize that you could largely get a ticket from from you could be cited by four law members of the law enforcement community and so oftentimes just trying to figure out how the you know the jurisdictional map works um there's a lot of people that you know we realize that you know being a city that has a major institution um and that you know we bring students from all around the world uh, we bring students from all around the country and many many that have direct experiences in a lot of communities that are hit with a lot of things that we've been, you know, uh, uh, inundated with um, through media and social media. So I think that kind of looking at it from that perspective, um, the, the, f- the focus on media largely represents really how we all have been processing a lot of the events that have simply been taking place around the country. I think oftentimes, you know, there's uh, a, a way that, um, you know, one day you can get quite literally, um, you know, post throughout the day where from all around the country, someone, someone is showing something that's happened. And, you know, there's, there's an impact that that has on us, whether, you know, you know, we go outside, we begin to look at, um, you know, our own community, whether those become like those immediate realities or whether that's something in the back of our minds. And I think that um, kind of having this emphasis and, and uh, people like uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Bempa um, to talk about, I think he's, he's being a professor of criminal justice is in a, particularly in a position and somebody that's been working with you know, law enforcement communities here in the city. He's able to really kind of talk about some of the things that um, can give us, get us away from a binary, a us versus them, rather than looking at us, you know, as a community and realizing that we're a community. We have law, we have uh, four law enforcement agencies within our community. Um, we also have and come from different, a different set of experiences. Um, we, we, some people have very, you know, uh, uh, you know, positive experience with the police, some uh, with with uh, uh, various members of law enforcement, some have very negative. And I think there's a lot there to unpack. And I think um, anytime you're bringing people together to talk about these issues, um, and, and we can be, un, uh, we can be, uh, uh, I guess, comfortable in our discomfort um, and get a kind of a teaching opportunity out of some of those things, I think that becomes, you know, especially critical. So this discussion largely, you know, represents that second um, um, in a series, but as an open forum, I think it's just largely something that's brought and to introduce something that's already been kind of present. Media is how it's always just been present. It's just sometimes, um, there's a way in which we can, uh, um, we can look at the relationship between just us and the police. And so we get a sense that, you know, the, the reports and the things that we read are somehow, uh, uh neutral in this. So, Picking up on this theme of social media, which I, I know is sort of the the key focus of this Thursday's meeting, uh, you know, a number of people across the country, uh, really around the world, have been talking about the fact that it's not so much that the number of incidences um, or you know negative incidences between civilians and police have increased so much as the fact that we are more aware of what's happening now because we live in a much more technologically advanced and instant society, we have cell phones and we have the technology to take videos with them and photographs. We have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have all of these um, social media, mass media communication tools which allow us to transmit information globally, not just nationally. Um, And so instantly when you know, a a child is dragged across the room, you know, in a classroom in South Carolina, um, within minutes her classmates' videos are being uploaded, um, you know, and and distributed through the social media networks, and so there's um, there's sort of this tension, right? That technology can be a really useful thing; it can keep people um, honest, um, it can certainly provide evidence and and be a witness to things that are going on, um, but there's also, I think, this sense amongst a lot of people that perhaps the technology has become 
um, that perhaps there, it's increasing fear in some ways because people are getting the perception that you know, the numbers of these incidences are increasing. And so I'm wondering maybe, Captain Marte, if you could speak a little bit to, you know, about, you know, technology as a useful tool, as a corrective, but also perhaps um, perhaps misperceptions that technology might be playing into. That, that's a very good question because the, the culture now for the police has to change. We have to change that culture in the sense of uh, when something negative happens, we have to show at least five positives to arrive that negative. And it's sad to say one officer that does, well, ex-officer that does a negative thing impacts all of us, the community as well, because then the mistrust starts again. Mm -hmm. But the sad thing about that is I could tell you how fast the, pos the positive things that, that uh, each day uh, uh, police officers throughout the nation, the good that they do is not caught every single time. But the spotlight really goes to the one negative you know, and that's the sad thing because we have officers that do positive things every single day. I give you one example. There was one trooper up north in the toll road to stop the individual black male, and, and the trooper was white. Chicago media gets involved, and what they heard was that trooper ripped up a ticket, which is true. He did rip up the ticket, but that was it. Didn't give the history behind it. Didn't give uh, how it led up to it. Didn't give the conversation that the trooper and the actual person that he stopped had didn't give all of that. It just gave us a very small clip. So one of the things that I talk about when I talk to the community as far as when you see something negative about the police, I'm not saying that it didn't happen. What I'm saying is try to get the full facts first before you come to context. conclusion. Context. The entire context before you come to conclusion because there are certain times that the full facts are not being re related at that given time. Now, there are times that when you see something, that is it. That is it. And as far as I'm concerned, you, you, one is too many. One negative officer is way too many because the culture that we have now, first of all, it's impossible to stop that because every organization has bad people in it. We have to do a better job in communicating to the community that we have the multiple people that we have do vast good things. Because the media is not going to do it for us. So we're going to have to do it ourselves one way or the other. We've got to get that communication out there because the fear is real. And every time you mention the example of that uh, young girl being dragged by that officer, wow. I mean, what do you say? I'm glad he's no longer a policeman. But when you see that, it really stains all of us at the same time. And that, mm -hmm. that, that separates us more. And I've been trying to find a common ground for us, which we could actually mend that bridge instead of separate the bridge. Because right now, what I'm noticing little by little nationwide is officers are being very, very concerned that if they make a mistake, they're going to be judged. And as, as human beings, we are going to make mistakes. I'm not going to sit and tell you I haven't made mistakes myself. But the spotlight is even more now because of the media, which is true, social media. Well, so you, you mentioned that there's always going to be, you know, bad individuals in all organizations, mm -hmm. but understanding, obviously, that teachers, religious leaders, and police officers are held to a higher standard, Absolutely. and understandably so. Absolutely. What can law enforcement officials do to um, better screen applicants, mm -hmm. number one, who are coming in, and perhaps change um, or adjust training in order to ensure that these incidences are minimized and that individuals like that have are less likely to get in and get through training in these organizations you know at the present time we do uh, well not only the state police throughout the nation every law enforcement agency really screens their people really closely before they become police officers i could tell you that <laughs> for the state police we have people that try to come in that commit a crime and try to become officers and we we, we filter them now the training that that we're gearing up to provide to the troopers right now. I already provided that training to, for example, IU, IU University Police Department uh, 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 cadets getting ready to become full-fledged police officers. It is on culture awareness for law enforcement. And basically what that is, is how do you deal with people that are different from you, regardless if you're white, black, whatever the case may be. And one of the things that I have to bring to the forefront, you have to have respect, period. You gotta treat people with respect, treat people the way you wanna be treated because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you are going to be judged by your actions and what you say. And what you said is 100% true. We have to hold ourselves to higher standards because we have a tremendous amount of responsibility. 
So that being said, training is is paramount. And we're trying to deal with a situation here that is growing so fast. The mistrust is growing so fast. And every time you try to mend that bridge, something else happens. And it's going to continue to happen. It's just the way that, you know, next week, tomorrow, we might not see another officer doing something that shouldn't have been, should not be done. Um, But the thing is that I really try to emphasize on is that that is not, that is not the majority of officers. That is not. The majority do a good job every single day. Unfortunately, again, the one that get the spotlight of the one to do things that shouldn't be done, unfortunately. Because when I go around through and talk to other, uh, when I talk to the community, and I talk to them about, okay, this is what I want you to do to make sure that in a traffic stop, you get to go home safe and not hurt, and we get to go home safe and not killed either also. That's what we have in common. So we talk about those things. But you're right. The media has a lot to play with this, a lot to do with this. You know, so that's why I appreciate what Ralphie's doing in the sense of this Thursday when we get together to give the public a, 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 an opportunity to talk to us, ask us certain questions that we can answer, put some misconceptions to rest, because we're human also. We're human. We do a job. We have to go home to our family as well. And I, w- and I would add to that, um, um, realizing the importance of making sure that there is a sense, there is a sense of trust and at least connection there. Uh, you know, prior to something some event happening you know uh, i think one of the things that you know oftentimes gets gets uh, can can be easily missed in the conversation is well people are, are ready to respond to you but um you know they're trying to figure out who you are uh, this is the first time that you're even reaching out after an event is, is has had, has already happened and i think that you know, we realize that community life is something that has to be built, but also sustained. And I think, you know, part of it is making sure that, um, you know, and when I've talked to, you know, representatives from the four communities, the one consistent thing that I've heard is whatever questions that they have, we're ready for. Them. And I think, you know, that represents something that says, hey, I mean, what, so whatever concerns, I mean, uh, if, if those are uh, people concerned about um, things that are happening in Seminary Park, if those are things that, you know, people are concerned about what's actually taking place in the nation, uh, and, you know, um, the, the relationship that some people have with the police, again, it's it's it might be issues where there's some particular area that they're concerned about. And I think th- what's important is, is that we continue to have conversations because we know what happens when conversations stop. Mm. Uh, and I think we've give, been given examples. So I think it's very important to make sure that. Yeah, open dialogue is definitely yeah. critical. So with the time that we have left, can we talk about uh, the format? If I'm a citizen coming to the meeting on Thursday, what would I expect? Is, you know what was going to take place. I know you have a, several law enforcement um, representatives who will be there. I know I was at the first forum, and it was a series of questions that was presented to div- those different uh, law enforcement representatives. And then afterwards, then the public just got to come up and make comments. And so will you see a similar format this time, or is it more of a conversation where I can come up and talk? I know that um, the information we got, that it's not only a community conversation, but if I wanted to have a one-on-one conversation like um, with Captain uh, Marti here that we could have our one-on-one conversation as well. So do you see both taking place at the same time or an open concept first and then a one-on-one conversation? Well, we'll, we'll have the general open forum that'll be uh, taking place in uh, council chambers that'll start, you know, at six o'clock. Um, uh, upon me making announcements, um, we're having, I've asked that representatives from uh, the respective law enforcement community that will be staffed in conference rooms throughout City Hall in the event that someone has um, a personal issue that they want to discuss. We realize that a lot of people, you know, uh, oftentimes don't necessarily feel comfortable talking in front of, you know, uh, open crowds, microphones. We'll, we'll make sure that uh, there's also an opportunity for uh, you to write questions down on cue cards, but again, open form, uh, moderate by uh, Dr. Akwasi Awosubimpa. Um, uh, again, a discussion that we hope to, that'll be spirited, honest, civil, um, and, uh, uh, you know, any questions. And, and I'm afterward looking for sustainability. I'm not, I don't want a program. I want something that we can begin to take, um, work, work on things and begin to bridge off of. So um, 
That's the general format of the program. And so how do you think you'll get the feedback from especially the one-on-one meetings that may take place? Um, well, we're hoping that people obviously stay after. Um, we schedule time to make sure that they get individual time with, uh, you know, representatives from the respective communities. Um, I'll be present. Um, I also put a, a survey, a post-evaluation eval- post uh, kind of program survey up so that we can get some honest responses. Um, Safe and Civil City, please befriend the Safe and Civil City program on Facebook, whatever comments that you have, as long as they are uh, uh, things that, you know, can be posted for uh, uh, a civil audience, that'd be great. So, um, again, and I'm open at any time. I am located at City Hall. Any questions, uh, my information is on the press release and also the other materials on the flyer that's included. Um, Go ahead. I was just wondering, too, just as we wrap up, thinking that, you know, Bloomington is, you know, a college town and we have we do have obviously four law enforcement agencies that have overlapping jurisdiction here. But the university is such a major part of this community in some ways, in fact, in a lot of ways. And um, just the conversations that I've had with IUPD and the things that I've been doing on campus. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about is sort of bringing campus and police closer together in terms of educational opportunities, classroom opportunities, teaching opportunities in order to, because we're talking about, you know, we talk about sensitivity training, but laying that language aside, talking about really introducing um, future law enforcement officials and current um, law enforcement officials to diverse groups of people and the history and context of those groups and understanding um ethnic and cultural differences in a way that can bring people together to have open dialogue and conversation before incidences happen. And I'm just wondering if one or both of you might want to just speak to that really quickly before we wrap up this evening. Uh, I think that's a great idea. I've, I've been invited down to uh, uh, Hanover College and, and they put a program together and invited me and was part of the panel and it was fantastic. Uh, a lot of those freshmen and, 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 and uh, juniors, they ask questions, tough questions. And, and uh, it went really well. Uh, if we have a program here to do that, I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, and, and I would just pipe in that, um, you know, that we recognize that the relationships that a lot of people have with their government, local officials, and so forth uh, can be strained in some areas. And we think it's always important to make sure that um, um, within our community, at least, we're working to actually begin to build bridges uh, with other communities. So I think it's important. As mentioned at the top of the hour, in honor of Memorial Day, the Bring It On crew has prepared a special broadcast of best of recordings from their archives. The second interview is from April of 2016 and it features Cornelius Wright and Amrita Myers in conversation with members of the Great Eight PhD graduates. The sisterhood of eight PhD candidates from the IU School of Education not only celebrated the completion of their degrees, but also made history as they were the first group of eight African-American women to earn this accomplishment together. These women are mothers, wives, and community leaders who have formed an unbreakable bond as they received their accolades in May of 2016. As reported in the Indianapolis Recorder, eight PhD candidates from the IU School of Education will not only celebrate the completion of their degrees, but will also make history as they are the first group of eight African-American women to earn this accomplishment together. Calling themselves the Great Eight, these women are mothers, wives, and community leaders who have formed an unbreakable bond, cheering one another along as they made their way to the finish line. Their names are Jada Phelps Moultrie, Shannon McCullough, Jahari Shuck, Nadria Njoku, Tiffany Kaiser, Jasmine Haywood, Demetrius Hutchins, and Johanna Rogers. Joining us by phone tonight are three of the great eight. They are Jasmine, Johanna, and Johari. Ladies, welcome to Bring It On. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, I feel honored to have you. This is really such a great accomplishment. Um, First of all, what made you decide to get into the field of education, just starting off? Well, this is Johanna. My decision to come into higher education was based on my undergraduate experience. Um, I was one of few um, African-American female students on the campus, and we did not have 
um, a woman of color um, working on the campus. And I wanted to make sure that um, other young girls from other urban areas that made it into college and was having that experience, that she had someone um, that looked like her um, present or involved that she could choose to connect to or just saw walking by campus, um, I think that would have made a world of difference to me um, as I was navigating um, the challenges that I found in undergrad when I needed some support, someone to help guide me through some of the instances that I experienced at my undergraduate institution, um, and I didn't necessarily have that. And so I just wanted to be there for another young woman. So that's why I chose to pursue higher education. This is uh, Demetrius Hudson. Um, and the reason why I decided to uh, go towards the terminal degree was I wanted to provide a voice for uh, former foster youth uh, at decision-making tables. So when it came down to programming, whether it's college readiness, whether it's um, just regular um, uh, things that have to deal with the foster care experience, I wanted to make sure that I was able to sit at the decision table uh, with those funders and providers that was making the decisions for foster youth and be able to offer a real voice, uh, lived experiences, uh, and be able to make some real change in the foster care system itself. So that's why I just pursued my degree. Um, this is Jahari, and I uh, decided, kind of like Johanna, to pursue my uh, degree in higher education based on my undergraduate experiences. Um, but my experience was a little bit different because I was not a first-generation student. I came from a middle-class home, um, and I struggled big time <laughs> in undergrad. And so those experiences helped me realize um, that Youth, young people that don't have those things that I had could struggle even more. And so I wanted to figure out a way to help students not do what I did and be more engaged and participate in more things that make them more successful on the college level. And so I felt that getting a master's and a Ph.D. in higher education was the way that I could um, contribute to that success of students that look like me but that can help them be successful um, in college. Yeah, and uh, this is Jasmine Haywood. I, get, I, I agree with uh, everything that's already been said and, um, you know, pursued education for many of the same reasons that have already been mentioned. The only thing I would add is just as a, uh, a testament to the sacrifices that my parents and, and uh, grandparents and others in my family um, have made for me to be here and, and to be in education, um, you know, they all did a lot more with a lot less than um, than I did, and so you know I always keep that in mind and 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 tell myself that. Well, so this is Amrita Myers. Thank you all so much for being on the show tonight. Um, I was hoping that you could all talk a little bit about how sort of the daily struggle, you know, for women of color in high, you know, in higher education when we're getting degrees, when we're, whether we're faculty of trying to balance professional and personal life. I know that you are all, um, you know, that you're mothers, you are wives, you're community leaders. Um, most of you don't live in Bloomington, so you're commuting on top of everything else. And I was just wondering if you could maybe, maybe you could share one particular experience that you had that sort of really challenged you in terms of trying to balance personal and professional, or maybe if you've come to some sort of understanding with yourself and your family and, you know, God or whatever higher power you choose to, um, to worship in terms of how to balance those things. Cause you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> I think for, and, and this is Demetrius and I'll, I'll speak first because the other ladies have a lot in common as far as them being single mothers and they can definitely speak to that. Um, uh, testament as far as time management goes, but I'll speak uh, on behalf of, of those folks that um, are single with no no children at all and going through this process. Um, it, I think my biggest challenge was to uh, stay grounded uh, within myself and who I was uh, as a person while going through this program. Um, uh, being who I am in my background, um, I, I tend to 
to keep busy in order to, to, to keep the loneliness away and all the rest of that stuff uh, goes, you know, having a, not having family and all the rest of that around. So um, I think it was, it, 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 for me, my biggest challenge was to make sure that I still had a piece of myself hmm. left throughout all of this. Um, because, you know, you have, I mean, I have that, that stigma of, you know, former foster youth, uh, not able to accomplish anything. We don't expect anything of her or anything like that. So I had that in the back of my head, always playing throughout my whole entire academic career. Um, then I also had, um, that piece of me that grew up in the community that said, Hey, don't forget where you came from. Um, yeah, you're on this path to success and all the rest of that stuff, but you still have to turn around and get back because it's this community, it's these people out here on the streets that actually helped support you and get you where you are. So I think for me it, the hardest thing or the biggest challenge was to not lose who I was and that self-identity and who I, what I was doing this for in the process of becoming a professional and becoming an academic and becoming a scholar. I'll say um, this is Jana, and um, I co-parented through much of my doctoral experience. My son's dad was um, very involved in um, his life and did help quite a bit with um, the balancing of a toddler's schedule and (laughs) all the things that he needed to be committed to and coming up. And as a mom and um, aspiring scholar and practitioner, um, I had to come to a place to understand the term balance. Mm-hmm. And it was a conversation with um, one of my mentors, Colin Matata, that really made me think about it in a very um, intentional way. And we were at um, a gathering of women on a Sunday afternoon, I remember, uh, in Indianapolis, and I was just telling her, (laughs) kind of like you asked, I was just juggling and trying to figure out um, what was happening that semester. Jasmine, myself, and Nadrea were commuting, I think, like three days a week back and forth to Bloomington, and we were working in Indianapolis, and I think Nadrea was pregnant at the time. I mean, it was just... I mean, those journeys to Bloomington were just, oh, my goodness, so many breakdowns on the way down. But Dr. Matata said, you, you're thinking about this all wrong. You're trying to juggle. And you can never um, establish a balance in juggling. What you need to do is prioritize and balance those priorities so that you're always going to have a uh, you can come to understand that you're always going to have a list of things that need to get done, but you have to do what's most important first, and you have to decide what's most important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of stuck with me, and that helped me deal with the guilt some nights. <laughs> that helped me <laughs> deal with, you know, letting things fall off the list and saying something that's just going to have to wait till tomorrow. But... Um, I think it was having, along with these women um, and the eight of us, but also having black female faculty that were mentors who had also been through these things was just so vital for me. Well, I, I know that you, none of you started at the same time. or So how did you form this wonderful bond of sisterhood, and who thought of the phrase, the great eight? <laughs> so we all... Uh, Jahari and I, I uh, started at the same time. We were in the master's program in IU School of Education at the same time. And uh, so we began at the same time. But And then Johanna, um, Dee, Shannon, and, and, um, and the others began a year before us. Um, Jada and Tiffany did begin the same time as, as as us, although they were in a separate program within the School of Education. Okay, now I have a follow-up question. Uh, I, think, I, I know that a lot of, there's been a lot of publicity about the Great Eight, and have you had any movie offers yet? 
I know the I know the Clarence I know the Clarence said he wanted to play one of your professors and I'd like to play one of your dads. So you know when that comes up, be sure to. We'll ask for a picture. We'll ask for a picture. We can see what. Photoshop you in. Yes, absolutely. And that Jahari and Jasmine. I don't know where Grade Eight came from. I, I don't you know what I, I know where it came from. from. I know where I it came from. Jahari. What happened was what happened was I initially, when Jasmine put her her uh, statement on Facebook, um, then right after that I shared her status and I initially called us the Black Eight because it was kind of like a playoff of the football players who had left IU like a long time ago mm. and they were called uh, Black 14 or the Black 10 or something and so I called us the Black 8 and then Johanna she's the the wordsmith and the uh, artist of us all so she she turned it into great 8 so that's how it, it kind of just uh, evolved took a life of its own and it's still taking a life of its own <laughs> yeah and the the question about how we came together it was um Probably during my second year, which would have been Jasmine's and uh, Jahari's first year, and Nadrea, I believe it was her third. It was um, one of those moments, probably a day that we didn't have to commute to Bloomington, <laughs> um, and we were just exhausted, I mean, emotionally, physically. And um, one of the things that we said was that we needed a space to just decompress as women, you know, in education, um, as black women in education, but even as black people in graduate education, we just experienced major um, aggressions towards us. Um, and we didn't really have a space to articulate it in a way that was, I think, gender and racially sensitive to us. And so we said, why don't we just get a group of women together and let's Let's just talk about this. What type of aggressions are, are you referring to? Does someone else want to? I'm, I mean, from being told in class that doing race-based research isn't research, um, to being questioned about um, how did you get here, um, yeah, and it singled out uh, being seen as a token in class because uh, a, a lot of our experiences, if we weren't the only minority in class, we were probably, you know, one of two or three in class. Mm -hmm. And just any time anything that had anything to do with minorities, whether it was African American or not, uh, the light was shown upon you as to you to speak for the whole entire uh, minority group mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and to have answers uh, for the people right. that were in class that didn't uh, bother to take their own um, initiatives and, and research the things on their own or research our culture on their own. Um, so just experiencing that and uh, yeah, like 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 Johanna said, the the academic violence that we experience as far as you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, topics and, and interests. Uh, that um, connected with us as minority females in a terminal degree program, an education program, and being told that, uh, well, that's not really significant enough to research, or maybe you should think about thinking this way instead of the way that you're going, or being labeled a critical race theorist and, and you know, you've only spoke two words just because you are a black female in a class. Um, so those are some of the things that I think that we all experienced that we need to digress upon. And it wasn't, I don't think it was just our doctoral program. I know as a master's student, I only had one person that I had to digress with outside of my, mas my master's programming, um, and we would sit for hours outside of class just digressing because that was the only space that we had to, to talk about what we just experienced uh, and being, you know, one of two or three minorities in the whole entire program. I can certainly um, appreciate what you're talking about. I mean, the, the variety of microaggressions um, 
can uh, is actually pretty mind-boggling, and uh, they don't change once you get to the other side and become a faculty member. Sadly, <laughs> they just I can imagine they just morph in some very insidious ways. If you are just tuning in with us right now, we are in the middle of interviewing four representatives from the Great Eight, um, eight black women who are set to get their PhDs together from the IU School of Education next week. Um, and they are, um, we have with us on the phone today, we have Jasmine Haywood, we have Johanna Rogers, Johari Shuck, and we also have Demetrius Hutchins. Um, we just wanted to say your names one more time in case people are just tuning in now. Um, I was wondering if I could maybe ask you to talk a little bit about you know, we have a lot of incredible young men and women of color in middle school and high school who are um, not necessarily being encouraged to go to college, who are not necessarily being encouraged to pursue postgraduate education. Um, you know, they're continually being told in all kinds of small and subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways that they're not smart enough or they don't belong or it'll be too hard. Um, I was wondering what advice you might want to pass on to those young men and women who um, are obviously going to hear your story and I'm sure be very inspired. But if you could maybe talk to them, what would you say to them? Um, you know, and I'm sure many of you have children. What would you say to your own children to sort of encourage them to not give up on their dreams and to pursue everything to their you know, utmost? Um, uh, this is Johari. I'll speak to that because I have a 16-year-old daughter right now, and um, she isn't facing those things, but she is thinking about college and, and that sort of thing. But the biggest thing that I try to share with her is to be responsible for her own education. Um, and to she doesn't allow me to, you know, slip on my parental obligations, even though she knows that I'm wrapped up in writing a dissertation. Um, but she doesn't hesitate to, you know, interrupt me to, you know, have her have me read a paper or something like that. So I think that it's important that we let these young people know that they are in control more than they think, and they're more empowered. And for parents, too, parents need to understand that they are empowered to, um, you know, intercede on their children's behalf if they're getting any inkling that they're receiving these subtle messages that you're not smart enough or, you know, college isn't for you or whatever. I, I go out and um, this is Demetrius. I, I speak with a lot of um, uh, young groups, uh, and I'm a speaker for the Indiana um, Speakers Bureau, where they have me go out and talk to especially um, inner-city youth about college goals and entertainment and college access. And I think one of the main things that I try to tell them, or at least that I try to hit them with first off when I present, is the stats. Um, and I don't do the negative stats because that's all they hear. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't need to hear that. Um, so what I start with is, and I tell them is, you know, in 2011, for the first time since we started keeping higher education statistics in 1975, in 2011, minorities surpassed all non-minority students in college enrollment. What does that say? That says that we're going to college, okay? Mm -hmm. So despite what the people out there on the streets or people in your neighborhood say, oh, you think you're too good, or you must think you're better than me, then right. let them think what they're going to think. But understand this, okay? For the first time in history, we are doing things that they didn't expect us to do. So while they are enabling us and allowing us to get these degrees, you need to go ahead and get it. So that And, and it takes uh, Jahari's tone as well as what she's telling her daughter. You have to be proactive. No one is handing you these things. No one is going to hand walk you through this because, one, you're not supposed to be there to begin with in the first place. So, no, you're not going to get hand walked through this. So what we need you to do is be proactive. Know where you are. Know, what, know, know where you sit. Know where you are on your, on your, on your high, um, high school graduation track and what track you're on and what degree you're getting with. Do some research. Find out what type of diplomas, what type of high school diplomas will get you directly into a college that you want without you having to take, to take remedial courses and those types of things. Find a FAFSA help program. They're out there, okay? Private industry has, has afforded folks uh, different uh, opportunities and different programs that they do this stuff for free. Get involved, okay? Take that handout. 
because they weren't offered before. Mm-hmm. This is your opportunity for you to transcend any other type of goal that your family ever had for you or for themselves. So take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I have, um, my son is 11 now when I showed up at IUPUI, he was just three months old. Yeah. And <laughs> and he grew he grew up on the campus and my um and has seen my journey from masters to PhD and what the conversation I had with him the other day in the car was you know, can you see what um I've been working towards? You know, do you remember when we were here? Can you see where we are now? Um, and letting him articulate the process and journey that we've been on um, has been real, something I've been doing in a real intentional way over the last few months um, because I'm hoping that he sees, you know, his parents' persistence, their um, diligence, and their commitment to excellence. Um and I'm hoping that that will, you know, continue to play in his mind. And these are things that he can think about and articulate on his own um, as he moves forward and through life. And he can share with his friends and and all of that. And so um, I think that is real important to me mm-hmm. as a mom and something that I want to, as an educator, want to share with other students bringing them to experiences that help them communicate in their own way about what success or progress looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, as was mentioned earlier, numbers are up on uh, black males and black females entering college. Um, you know, one of the goals has always been for us to get our bachelor's degree in college. Uh, what would you say to those that are vacillating between pursuing a doctorate or being content with a master's or a bachelor's degree? Go ahead. That's a, a difficult question, right? Because we're like in the thick of it now. <laughs> so who better to, to answer that question than you? Yeah, right. I would well, yeah, say I, mean, um, I would say to to make uh, long-lasting, impactful, transformational change for historically marginalized groups uh, within a post-secondary setting, you need to have a Ph.D. or uh, some type of terminal degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't say that to be elitist. I say that because that gives you a seat at the table Mm. Um, and it's a table in which not many people will look like you and it's important uh, to have a seat at that table because that's where uh, institutional policies are you know made and and broken and so that allows you to from the top down that allows you to dismantle a lot of the inequities um, that marginalized students face on a day-to-day basis in a way that you cannot do with uh, with just a master's as a practitioner. Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Jasmine hit the, hit the nail on the head, in, in my opinion. It's all about, first of all, uh, for, well, I guess you have to have an a altruistic approach to what it is that you're doing. Um, and if you have that approach, then, yes, your goal is to be at that table making decisions, at that decision-making table and representing your community. So, yeah, if you, if you have those altruistic goals, then, yes, that's your ultimate goal. Um, but just, just, just period, and I don't care uh, what it is, what it is that you're pursuing, what, what it is that you're pursuing. If you want to be a bricklayer, you be the best bricklayer that you could possibly be, and reach the pinnacle of what it is to be a bricklayer. Um, and that's just with anything that you pursue in life. You want to be the very best that you can be, exactly. whatever it is that you choose to go for. And for us, if you choose to go for higher education, then reaching that pinnacle, reaching that terminal degree mm-hmm. is you becoming the absolute best.
what it is that you decided to put your mind towards. So it doesn't matter whether you're at a bachelor's level or you're trying to go towards a master's or at a master's level trying to go towards a doctor or at a street level trying to go for a certificate. It does not matter. The thing is, is whatever it is that you set your mind to do Mm. legally, then be the very best at it that you can be. And that means reaching the pinnacle of whatever it is that industry allows you to reach. No, that's... I, I couldn't, you know, sort of second and third what you said any any better than the way you already said it. Uh, students who come into my office and tell me that they want to go to graduate school, I always tell them first, are you really sure? Uh, if it's your calling and you know that this is what you're supposed to do, then, you know, do it no matter how hard it is and it's going to be hard. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth it. Um, so I just, I really admire all of you ladies. Um, as we're wrapping up, maybe just... Um, what has it meant to your families? Like you've been talking a lot about your children, but I'm wondering what this means to your parents, um, your siblings, and others in your community who have watched you go through this process. Hmm. Well, oh, <laughs> this is Johanna. Um, it's funny. Uh, my family, wow, my mom is so excited. She's like, we, you know, <laughs> Can we do every ceremony? (laughs) (laughs) Mom, no, there isn't enough time. We'll be exhausted. But um, someone reminded me yesterday that, you know, this is just as much about them as it is about you. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm graduating, you know, next week with all the ceremonies. And then the following week, my brother is also graduating um, with his with his bachelor's from Eastern Kentucky University. Mm-hmm. So my mom has been beaming. <laughs> <laughs> my family has been just beaming uh, for weeks now. Cause, you know, you know, not only is is this happening, and then the White House is tweeting, and we're on the radio, and all of this. And you know, my family comes from the Low Country of South Carolina. You know, oh, wow. um, we we still have our family land that my great grandparents bought, and so this is just a testament um, to the journey that mm-hmm. our that our ancestors has been on for generations. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I could fully articulate what it means. <laughs> I just know that you know, just connecting the dots and being the recipient of the degree that it's a lot but I can't even begin to break down or think about what it really means to the other folks in mm. my family. Not yet. <laughs> I just know it's, you know, everybody's trying to put their Sunday best on as many days as possible. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't think I'm in a place to even process that in a really real way yet because mm. it's, it's overwhelming. Honestly, um, it's really overwhelming and humbling at the same time. I, yeah, I wish we weren't running out of time. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. We'll just. No, no. We should take one more, and then we can we, no, we can wrap I'm it up. I'm just gonna say that my family that has not gone to college and that has you know never don't don't know what a dissertation is or what research is. They've all been so excited and sharing my stuff on Facebook and just seeing the pride in them. And they haven't even been, stepped on a campus before has been really uh, powerful for me. Wow. All you ladies are so inspirational. I'm so proud of all of you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We want to thank once again Jasmine Haywood, Johanna Rogers, Johari Shuck, and Demetrius Hutchins for joining us tonight for a discussion on their academic journey as members of the Great Eight. Eight 2016 PhD candidates who will graduate uh, next week from the IU School of Education. Ladies, thank you again for joining us. It was really wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Enjoy next week with your families. We hope you enjoyed today's special Memorial Day broadcast of Bring It On. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On's producer is Clarence Boone with production support coming from WFHB News Director Wes Martin. 
The board engineer and host for today is yours truly, Chris Martin, and our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam. Be sure to tune in next Monday, June the 4th at 6 p.m. for another exciting Bring It On broadcast, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.